And the sermon's from Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. And you've got it on your service sheets and on the screen. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Thank you, John. It would be strange with the first words of that reading if we didn't pray as we turn to the Bible. Lord, we thank you for a firm ground under our feet in your word to take our stand on. And we pray that you would speak to us and work in us as we heed your word and believe it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would love you to keep that service sheet close to hand, if you would. Uh, so that you've got sight of the passage. It was Mark Twain, who was an American writer, who had to protest publicly on one occasion after everybody had begun mourning his loss. And he had to protest that rumors of his own death had been greatly exaggerated. You can almost imagine him choking on his Weetabix one morning. He's reading his own name in the death columns in the papers. And... uh, a list of all his achievements and, and everything like that. And then he has to pinch himself to see if it's actually true or not what he's read. And then reporting to the public to scotch the rumour and show that he was actually alive and kicking, not dead at all. Well, for years now, another death has been scurrilously reported across the Western world. People have proclaimed the demise of the church for over 100 years now. And once again, it seems to me the victim has every right to stand up and say that rumours of its death have been greatly exaggerated. My text for today is actually taken from the start of the letter we've been looking at for a while, because Paul had to reassure them that the church was alive and well in his day. In Colossians 1 verse 6, he said this, The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. So wherever Christ is at the centre, whether that's in Colossae, whether that's in the first century or the 21st century. The church enjoys a healthy vitality. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And that's my text because the worldwide growth and expansion of the church is where Paul focuses as he begins to wind up his letter in chapter 4 we've reached today. Up till now, you could say that he's had the spotlight on the inside of the Colossian church, He's been praying for them to keep Jesus central in the face of teachers who wanted them to add to Jesus Christ and to move on to a new level of spirituality. Now he concentrates on the growth of the gospel beyond Colossae. Don't forget the world outside your church. This gospel of yours isn't your private property. You can't keep it to yourselves because any living Christianity, Christianity with Christ at the center, will bear fruit and grow. It's interesting to be looking at this in a week when another Mark 
from America, Mark Zuckerberg, has decided that Facebook needs to die and be reborn as Meta, a new name for a new age. And I guess there will be a whole load of rebranding and relaunching after the pandemic and as COP26 calls on us to embrace a new world order. Question, are we meant to buy into that idea for the Christian faith or not? Well, I want to suggest from these verses in Colossians 4 three strategies for our vitality and for the advance of the gospel from the start of chapter 4. Pray, proclaim, engage. So pray first, and briefly let's look at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Because that vertical relationship with God is the key to bringing God's supernatural power into the life of the Christian and the church. I mean, as long as we only talk amongst ourselves, we've only got our own resources available to us. But as soon as we talk to God, something different's happening, isn't it? Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Notice that we are to be watchful, vigilant, that means, as we pray. And I guess that means aware of the reality and danger of our situation. Prayer is not about being cocooned and cosy. It's much more like a wartime walkie-talkie. Be watchful. But equally, we are to be thankful as well, which is so often in this letter the acid test of a healthy spiritual condition. Not just being grateful, but expressing our gratitude to God. This is part of a a point about prayer, isn't it? Praying our gratefulness. I love encouraging us to pray in the services, short prayers of gratitude from all around the congregation in church, because I think we can help each other by doing that. I listen to you thanking God, and I'm more aware of the riches that I have in Christ. So then, run those tests, if you would, on your prayers. Are you watchful? Are you thankful as you pray? We had a look at Daniel this morning as an old man in his 70s, threatened with death in a den of lions if he prays to anyone other than the ruler, Darius. So what does he do in that situation? Well, nothing new, just what he's always done. Three times a day, he opens the window towards Jerusalem and he prays, giving thanks. And I had a simple visual for the children. He'd outlived... Two kings, King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar. And he wasn't afraid of the third king, King Darius, because he was in touch daily with, I love doing this, the great king, the king who's king over all, almighty God. So, in prayer, that was Daniel being watchful and thankful. And that is how the church outlives and outlasts everyone and everything else. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Being vaguely in favor of prayer 
is not what we're asked to do. Devoted sort of is the language of a, a, a resolve, a resolution, a commitment. Will you make that resolve? Will you, for example, change your plans if need be for Wednesday evening this week so you can be at the monthly prayer meeting? Pray. Secondly, proclaim. And you'll see that word comes twice in verses 3 and 4. I'll read them again. And pray for us too that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in praying in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, clearly, we can't obey that command in the same way that Paul wanted the Colossians to. They would have prayed for him, and we can't do that in quite the same way. If you get my drift, I'll explain more what I mean. The apostle to the Gentiles was in prison. But in that situation, he could still proclaim the mystery of the gospel, which was, we've already seen in this letter, specifically that Christ could be in the Gentiles, the hope of glory for them, as well as all God's Old Testament people, the Jews. So the force of the prayer he's asking for there is that the gospel be published and proclaimed, even to Gentiles, despite the fact that the apostle of the Gentiles was in prison. If God has revealed something, then it's got to be made known and loud and clear, proclaimed, declared. That was what Paul was after, and that was what would create gospel growth in the young church. As I said, we we can't obey that command in the same way that Paul expected the Colossians to obey it. But we can, can we not, honor the spirit of the command? 2,000 years on, there are no apostles like Paul to pray for. He's in glory, not in prison, but proclamation of the mystery that has been revealed through Paul Well, that we can be committed to and pray about. For us, it seems to me, to all intents and purposes, that means this book, does it not? Proclamation of the message of, well, let's be more specific, the New Testament. Not that we don't proclaim the old, but proclamation of the message of the New Testament. Proclamation specifically of the message of Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. That proclamation will be vital for us since we live in the Gentile world. What God has revealed, God wants the world to know. So don't underestimate the supernatural power of the word of God. The message of this book, which as we've heard Martin Luther stood for and proclaimed, is quite unlike anything else on offer in the world. And we can afford to be unashamed and to proclaim it boldly and clearly. See, in one sense, the desire for novelty is, um, is not particularly good news. We don't have to copy Facebook and morph into Meta. Proclamation as a priority asserts that what God has revealed is still what the world needs to know today. I mean, the packaging might change, that's true. 
probably we have to change in some ways with the packaging. But the content we proclaim must stay the same. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the Bible's message. I wonder, are you reading the Bible day by day with this question in mind? Is there something here that I'm reading in God's word that he wants me to proclaim to other people? I don't just read it for myself. I read it for others too. So pray, proclaim, and lastly, engage. Which is the responsibility in verses 5 and 6 of every believer? Every one of us here who knows and loves Christ. Let me read them again. This is not just for the frontline missionary like Paul. It's for all of us. Verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I've deliberately chosen as a heading that word engage to describe our interaction with those who aren't yet Christians. Not the other E word that we sometimes hear, evangelize. That word often causes a bit of a guilt trip. And we conjure up an identical picture of the evangelist in our heads. And it's always somebody we think, someone who's got the gift of the gab, somebody who's afraid of nothing, Somebody probably with a great big black Bible and a great big personality to go with it. And we think, well, that's not me, that person. I can't do that. And it's a step from saying, I can't do that, to I don't do it. I don't share the gospel. And so I feel guilty. So it's a guilt trip word often, evangelism. But engagement, it seems to me, is rather different For a start, did you notice here that this little bit here doesn't tell me to take the initiative to tell everyone about Jesus? He says here, I'm to get wisdom so that I know how to answer people. And that's worth pondering, isn't it? I think it means that I don't have to feel miserable as sin if I don't manage to steer the conversation miraculously around to Jesus Christ every time I speak to my neighbor over the fence. By all means, pray for God to give me opportunities to speak to people, but don't force them. If we force the conversation, I mean, you'll know this happens. In all likelihood, there'll be the most awful sort of grinding of gears, and most people will run a mile. And then, no wonder, we get more reluctant to try again the next time. And we might start thinking, well, I assume it's just not my gift, so it's probably somebody else's responsibility. Well, Colossians 4 says this is for everyone, this matter of engagement. But it does give us a way for our engagement with outsiders to be natural. Here it is. For all my conversation, all my conversation to be full of grace so that the salt of the gospel has worked its flavor through all my conversation. It's made it spiced and different from everybody else's everyday chatter, full of the love of Christ in what I say, whatever I'm talking about, and in how I say it. And the way that all my speech, all my conversation is shot through with Christ and his love is presumably for my life to be full of grace. 
which is where he starts here. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I think it goes a long way, this idea of engagement, to explaining, help us understand the growth of the early church. For their engagement with outsiders was a lifestyle. It arose out of their behavior as much as it came out of their lips. It did come out of their lips too, but the lives were speaking as well. They were so distinctive in their family life, in the warmth with which they spoke about each other, in their work, in their attitude to sex, that they were a walking puzzle to everybody else. And there were inevitably questions, why did you do that? Why did you behave that way? And so on. I had a, a nice example of this recently in the village. As somebody who's not been too long in Little Shelford, but shortly after moving in, her son dropped his wallet in the street. And it was a Christian who returned the wallet to the house and met them. And from that point on, she's been aware of Christians nearby. I've not said much to her myself. We greet each other casually from time to time. I, I, I like to think that my dog has evangelized her dog. But it's basically just normal interaction, everyday life. But I heard last week that she said... Part of me would love to come and see what happens at your church if only I believed it. And a friend of mine was able to tell them that they were welcome to come even if they aren't believers. Now, that sort of thing is what it seems to me we mean by engagement. It's why we want to have, I mean, there are all sorts of applications for it. It's why we want to have socials as well as Bible studies for our young people living the life before them, as well as talking the talk. It's why being open to their questions may be as important sometimes for them as sitting, down, sitting them down for a Bible talk. And this sort of engagement won't happen by accident. So I want to ask, are you willing to engage with people outside the Christian faith, to get to know them, to let them get to know you. Who is there who you are well-placed to engage with by life and lip? You've got somebody in your mind's eye as I ask that question. And probably there are some people for whom there is no other Christian better placed than you to befriend them and share your life with them. Will you engage? So then, three strategies to ensure the growth and advance of the church. To disprove the myth that Christianity is dead and buried. Pray, proclaim, make known what God has revealed, and engage. And it seems to me those three ought not to be separated from each other. They belong together. It's no good proclaiming into thin air if we haven't first engaged with people so that they're listening. Equally, it's no good engaging with people and having lots of lovely relationships if we never actually proclaim what God has revealed. If it's a matter of revelation, they're never going to work it out themselves unless they hear it from a Christian, and that could be you. Proclamation and engagement belong together. No proclamation without engagement, there shouldn't be. No engagement without proclamation. And both those two, proclamation and engagement, 
must go with prayer. I must say, it's God's work. We desperately need his power and his help to do it. But put those three together, pray, proclaim, engage, then we'll see the gospel bearing fruit and growing here and all over the world. Well, let's pray that it be so. Father, we look to you for the strength that only you can give, the word that only you can make known. It's your word. And for a love in our lives, your grace, filling our lives, filling our conversation, and uh, giving us that gospel wisdom to engage with people. And we pray that, as you've said, your gospel would bear fruit and grow through us. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.